welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. This week, we are talking about AUKUS, the new strategic compact which brings together Australia, the UK and the United States of America, something which has led to the biggest crisis in transatlantic relations since the Iraq war in 2003. Although in some ways, maybe an even bigger one, because the Iraq war was definitely a crisis within the West. Many people are saying that this signals the end of the traditional West and a new era in transatlantic relations. To help us make sense of how we got here, what it means for the future of transatlantic relations as seen from an angry Paris and a slightly more bemused Washington, and what lessons we can draw for European strategic autonomy and European sovereignty. I have an all-star cast. First up from Berlin, we have Janka Ertel, the head of ECFR's Asia program. From Paris, we have Tara Varma, who will let us know just how angry they really are over there. And newly returned from Washington, also sitting in Berlin, now our research director, Jeremy Shapiro. We also have some brand new data from an enormous 12-country survey that ECFR has done of European countries looking at attitudes to the US-China Cold War, which um, I will talk you through later on in the podcast when it comes to the questions of strategic autonomy. But to get us going, why don't we go to you, Janka? Tell us how we got to this situation and, and what AUKUS means. Why is it such a big deal? So first of all, it came as a bit of a surprise package to the Europeans. And what is in it is that the US, the UK and Australia have jointly decided to um, just extend their collaboration on technology, including on AI, on cyber, on quantum, um, in the military realm and form a massive information sharing, technology sharing alliance that at the heart of which we also have a deal over the, sell, uh, the, the selling of and the sharing of um, nuclear submarine technology and the uh, provision of nuclear submarines to Australia. And that is quite significant um, because of the technology dimension around it, because of the framework that is built around it, but also because of Australia being a, you know, a, a state that doesn't even have a civilian nuclear program, um, but that will be the first um, state that doesn't have civilian nuclear technology to actually operate then nuclear submarines. Over the next, next 18 months, this deal uh, and the exact shape of it will be hammered out. Um, but the problem with it is that it also um, in, kind of resulted in the cancelling of a submarine contract that the French had with the Australians over 12 diesel-powered uh, diesel submarines. Um, and that led to significant irritation in France because of the way this has come about. The reason why Australia um, is kind of changing its, uh, its strategy here is obviously a lot to do with China. It has to do with the changing strategic environment that they find themselves in and the greater assertiveness that the Chinese are portraying and the military buildup that the Australians and the countries in the region are perceiving. Um, the Indo-Pacific is becoming a region of great attention and it is becoming one where um, the repositioning of our demographic allies there will continue to take place. And this is just a kind of a wake up call for what is happening in the region and how scared countries are um, being at the kind of receiving end of Beijing's assertive action. Okay, 
So I want to go into a lot of those questions uh, with all of you later on, but maybe um, we, we should go straight to, to Paris, um, which is seems to be seething as a result of this, accusing um, various people of betrayal and um, recalling ambassadors, cancelling summits with, uh, with different countries uh, and, and meetings of defence ministers. Uh, Tara, tell us... Um, why Paris is so angry? Well, Paris is angry, first of all, because there is some humiliation in this whole process, right? They basically learn about the news uh, at the same time as, as everyone else, as any other citizen, um, almost with the push notification on their telephone. So that is slightly problematic uh, when dealing uh, with allies. And it's even more problematic when the French have been uh, the, the most uh, forceful nation, the most forceful forceful, sorry, member state in the EU pushing for um, an Indo-Pacific strategy. And they actually did so in 2018 from Sydney itself, um, having partnerships with Japan, Australia, um, India were, was really a major uh, basis for the French Indo-Pacific strategy. And there was quite a bit of room for transatlantic cooperation there too. And I think Paris was extremely vocal about this and was yeah, again, very vocal about it for the past three years, pushing Europeans to adopt an Indo-Pacific strategy. And the unfortunate calendar of all this is that actually the Europeans did adopt their strategy only a day after uh, the announcement by the Americans. And so Paris is angry because they feel like they have been betrayed. I mean, the words used by uh, Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian and uh, his counterpart from the armed forces are very strong. They're talking about duplicity about incoherence in the American strategy. Um, and they're saying that nothing like this has happened before. And as you said, Mark, I mean, ambassadors have been recalled the first time in, in the bilateral relationship. So one can only hope that things will, now that they've escalated, they'll de-escalate. Um, the State Department was declaring yesterday that uh, they were very much looking uh, forward to talking to the French uh, during the United Nations General Assembly that is uh, being held in New York right now. And we learned also yesterday evening that uh, Joe Biden is uh, looking to speak to Emmanuel Macron and trying to probably sort this out together. So. so we'll talk to Jeremy in a second about how people look at it from Washington. But my sense is that the assumption in Washington is that Europeans get kind of pissed off. The French in particular, you know, end up often throwing their toys out the pram. But, you know, in a few weeks, things will calm down and we can go back to, to business as usual. Um, Afghanistan was another example where allies got very upset at being completely sidelined and not consulted. Um, but um, they didn't seem that bothered in Washington about uh, about the reaction of allies to, to, to that particular move. Um, is this different from a French perspective? Is this something where it's just about showing a lot of anger and then de-escalating in the way that you're talking about? Or could there be some longer term consequences from this? So I, I think there will be longer term consequences because there is a sense that a lot of people in Paris who have been pushing for um, strengthened transatlantic agenda have basically been humiliated too. And there's a very strong emotional reaction, not just from officials, but I should say that from officials, it's quite surprising, but from researchers, scholars, experts, journalists who are used to working in a transatlantic environment, the, the reaction is also very emotional. And it's still emotional four days later, which is quite surprising to me. Um, and in terms of um, how fast we'll go back to normal, I'm 
I think there is a sense from Paris, at least, that actually Afghanistan and now AUKUS is part of a sequence. Afghanistan was one issue. And actually, you know, the Afghanistan issue is very different from this because the Americans had actually won the Europeans in the spring and the Europeans could have asked for more consultations with the Americans. They were partly responsible for the situation that they didn't anticipate. This is completely different because the French were left in the dark uh, of this whole process that apparently started as early as March 2021. So I, to me, the, the two are not totally comparable, but they do feel like an unfortunate sequence from here. So, Jeremy, a lot of people in the U.S. Are sort of seem to be implying that, you know, the French have been calling for strategic autonomy for ages. Now they can get it. What are they complaining about? Surely this is the natural consequence of, of France wanting to go its own way. Um, they talk about the way that um, the Europeans weren't that interested in consulting with Washington about the about CHI, the, the comprehensive agreement on on trade and investment, um, which they launched with with um, with China during the interregnum, um, and uh, this is basically, you know, a self uh, created uh, situation for that reason. Is that is that right? This is the the kind of new normal. Uh, yeah, I'm not even clear that you needed me for this podcast, Mark, but I'll I'll expand <laughs> on that. In any case, uh, I think that uh, from a from a Washington perspective, this is very performative. I mean, um, the sort of idea that it's, it's not surprising that the French are upset, but uh, the idea that this is a sort of uh, outside of the realm of diplomatic activity of allies isn't quite how they see it. Uh, and I think they're not, frankly, all that worried about this sort of crisis in transatlantic relations that the French are talking about, because none of the other Europeans are talking about it. The silence from other Europeans has become quite deafening in the past few days. Uh, and I think uh, behind the scenes, the other Europeans are saying to the Americans, see, those French are quite emotional. Uh, and so, um, you know, I don't I, I, I think that in in Washington, there is a sort of sense that that this will pass um, to me. And I, I can't attribute this to people to to other people in Washington. There There is an important difference between uh, the the AUKUS, if that's what we're supposed to call it, and uh, and the Afghanistan issues, which really get at the heart of what might be lasting and what might not be lasting in the way that those two episodes will impact transatlantic relations. The in Afghanistan, people were always were also complaining a lot about consultations. You know, when when you, when Europeans complain about consultations, Americans just hear blah 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 blah. It's like the snoop. It's like the peanut uh, adults talking. Um, but the more the more concerning thing, I think, was the demonstration of American incompetence and lack of power and the way in which that was demonstrated in the Afghanistan thing caused a lot of Europeans, I think, and Americans saw this to say, well, gee, you know, maybe we maybe these people aren't actually capable of this kind of, of the consistency of policy and the and the governance competence that they that they need in order to be counted on. And AUKUS is kind of the exact opposite of that. Here is a huge diplomatic coup um, to a degree at the expense of France, but to a much greater degree at the expense of China. Um, and it really looks like a country which is seizing the reins of leadership in the new area of the world. And that, that for better or for worse, is a display of competence, which is actually probably uh, going to make people feel more comfortable in Europe about the Biden administration, um, even if not that many of those people are in France. But 
So that's one way of looking at it. And I think Janko would be great to, because you talk to lots of European governments and you're seeing in, in Germany, which it is a slightly kind of becalmed state, given that it's just a few days before the election. So it's unlikely that there'll be a huge kind of strategic reaction, given that everyone's off campaigning for the last few days of, of, of their votes. But do you, do you think Jeremy's right that people just see this as a kind of French thing? Because a less charitable way of, of looking at what Jeremy said is that, um, you know, the US has won a kind of significant advance in its relationship with um, with Australia, but at, at the same time risks losing Europe, which could actually be much more significant in a, if there is a big conflict with China over the future of globalization, over the future of technology, of norms. Uh, and if you look at most of the different pillars of the, the Cold War with China, I'm not sure whether Australia... Uh, measures up to the size of the, the whole EU economy. But if, if Jeremy's right that it's it has just a much France, better location though. If if the if the Cold War is about, you know, having submarines going around and encircling China, then that's one thing. But if it's a kind of all of society conflict which involves controls of supply chains and norms and digital technologies and infrastructure then um, uh, it's a different sort of thing where Europe is obviously more of a player than, than if it's yeah. just a, a kind of maritime question about the Indo-Pacific. And I think it'd be um, interesting to hear, Janka, whether what's happened from this is, in other European countries is seen as a, a display of, of uh, American power and American competence, or whether Tara is right that it's more about... Um, showing further a level of disdain for Europeans and a, a kind of unwillingness to, to take Europeans with them, which, which um, reinforces the Afghan story. Yeah, I think that's not maybe a super popular opinion in all of Europe, but I do think that we are taking ourselves a little bit too important in this conversation. This is first and foremost about Australia's security perception. This is first and foremost about developments in the region. Um, and about the kind of processes that that involves and the solutions that they're finding for it. It is about alliances that may work. Um, it is about attempts uh, to move things forward and to move on an agenda that is incredibly important to the Biden administration, and that is also maintaining military dominance in the Indo-Pacific region. And I think that is something that we just, you know, that's at the heart of this. Now, I do think that there is a role for the Europeans in this in defining whether the U.S. having military dominance in the Indo-Pacific region is in our strategic interest or whether that is not the case. And whether that, if that's not the case, um, what the alternative looks like and what that means for us, if we can live with that or if we cannot live with that. So I do think that there are broader strategic questions with the Europeans around it, and that may also explain some of the deafening silence here, because it's really not easy to find a good answer to this. I mean, there is no understandable reason for the German government not to speak out and say, well, quite frankly, the style of this was not very nice. Um, we don't like the fact that the French had to find out about this over the, in the press. And we don't think that this is a way that the Europeans should be treated by the American government. I don't think that that would be a problem for the German government to say that out loud and to show this kind of support also to Macron, who's also ahead of an election where this kind of domestic reaction is very understandable um, and where this is, it's not. And so um, I think that what we see from the German side at the moment is just not reaction. Literally, the reaction from the, from the foreign office was we take note of this development. I don't think that taking note of the developments that are taking place in the region of larger strategic relevance for European prosperity in the future is going to cut it in the future. 
So I think that's the, that's the kind of zone that we find ourselves in, slightly surprised by what is going on, being a spectator of developments that are really crucial. Um, and I do think that, that we will see after the election in Germany that is really keeping, keeping things very busy here at the moment, um, that we will see a reckoning with that. And we will have to come to answers to some of these big strategic questions. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like, I'm oh, sorry, I'd like to maybe um, add a, a point to what Yanko was saying, because I think, I think it's really important to recognize that uh, if we may be moving into this sort of area of uh, this age of sort of infrastructure and connectivity and all of those things. And I, I, I definitely believe and accept those arguments about how this Cold War will differ from the next one. But military dominance is going to be a big issue in, in the and it is a central feature of the U.S. strategy and the Chinese strategy for the region. Um, and it's probably going to be the central axis still, even as those other things gain in importance. And, and so, you know, at the end of the day, uh, 12 Australian nuclear submarines roving the, the, um, the East Asian waters is going to, is going to be, is going to be a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal to the Chinese. It's a big deal to the Americans. Uh, and everything will ro rotate around the axis of that uh, military confrontation in the region. And even, and, it's it will be important in that confrontation for Europe for the United States and Europe to be working together on these other aspects. But they have to get that from the American perspective. They have to get that that aspect, the military dominance aspect, or the military confrontation aspect first. What I don't quite understand, and that's a big question that I have to the Americans, is why was it not possible to bring the two sides together, to bring both of those elements together? Because there is a strategic advantage of having a strong French yeah. um, kind of presence in the region. I don't understand why the two should be mutually exclusive. Um, why would one move ahead with this? And this is something that I think needs explaining, and we don't know the details at this point in time. Um, but I think the reasoning of Kind of, that it needs military capabilities was precisely at the heart of the French decision to uh, to sell submarines to to Australia and to enhance its strategic presence there and to enhance strategic defense cooperation as well. So I think that we still need a lot of untangling on that in in the next weeks to come. What was at the heart of this really? So I, yeah. I want to untangle that a bit more, but um, this might be a useful moment to bring in some of the data from our amazing new report, um, which is called. What, Europe, what Europeans think about the US-China Cold War. And um, I think that could help us maybe talk about what this whole process means for European strategic autonomy. Because we basically asked questions of, of Europeans in 12 different countries, and we kind of found quite a surprising set of features. Firstly, um, unsurprisingly, a majority of people think that there is a Cold War going on between the United States and, uh, and, and China and Russia. Um, but uh, what we found even before AUKUS, because this polling was before AUKUS took place, is that citizens in many European countries are, are very ambivalent about talk of a new global confrontation. And a majority of people in every single country polled think that this Cold War is happening between China and, 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 and the US, but they also think it has absolutely nothing to do with their country and that their country shouldn't stay involved. That's not entirely new because we found that in other polls that, that we've done where people ask for think that their, their country should stay neutral in a conflict between China and the US. But what was maybe even weirder was this was was when we dug a bit more deeply about uh questions to do with strategic autonomy. Because Emmanuel Macron seems to think that um the way that you can actually stop being a spectator 
and uh, develop uh, strategic autonomy is for Brussels to become a, a kind of alternative pole to, to the dependence on the USA. But most Europeans, when they were asked, think that Brussels is in fact more likely to be in a Cold War with China and Russia than their own countries. And in a way, see it as uh, the most kind of dependable and subservient ally of Washington, uh, rather than being an alternative to it, um, which is quite a, a kind of counterintuitive and, and strange sort of finding. Um, we've also saw in the poll quite a few differences between how Brussels and Washington, particularly Washington, see um, uh, this conflict between China and America and the way that many European publics seem to see it. Firstly, uh, there is a sort of question about, um, uh, about uh, whether um, there is a sort of ideological uh, um, element to it um, where most Europeans don't seem to, 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 to see it as, uh, as particularly ideological. Secondly, there's a question about how existential um, it is, whether this is something which poses a massive threat to them. In fact, a lot of Europeans we've found from earlier polls don't think that, that they, are, they are under existential uh, danger from China and don't rely that much on the US security guarantee. There's a sort of geographical split as well, because most Europeans see Russia as a bigger threat than, than, than China. Um, but fourthly, and most interestingly, is this question about alliances. In the past, the main way that European publics thought about alliances uh, in terms of their sovereignty was that they should have the right to join alliances. But actually, um, a lot of Europeans now seem to see sovereignty as about the right not to be allied with the US and to be neutral in, in the conflict with, with uh, the US. Anyway, these are some of the sort of things that came out of the poll, but it would be very interesting to to look at this whole idea of strategic autonomy against the background of AUKUS and whether it makes it more likely or less likely, whether this is going to create a big transatlantic division between European countries with some people wanting to kind of bandwagon to distance themselves from the French anger, or whether, in fact, this might lend uh, extra power after the Afghan story to, to French calls for Europeans to finally really get their act together in lots of different areas and to, to invest in European sovereignty. Tara, what's the, the kind of working assumption in Paris about that? So clearly in Paris, this is the moment to push European strategic autonomy. This was actually um, the last sentence of the joint communique by Parly and Le Drian, which was released in the, the night between uh, Wednesday and Thursday last week. And they say this very precisely. They've been uh, repeating it um, a number of commentators here keep saying that this is the way to go. It's quite logical, but everything that's happened, again, because it feels like a sequence from here, feels like there's been Afghanistan, there's been this. I think there are two separate topics, but this is the way things are felt in Paris right now. Um, there is one radical fringe that kind of says this is the time to cut off uh, relations with the US. I, I'd say that's a minority fringe inside Paris, but we've been hearing since yesterday quite a few candidates um, for the presidential election next year saying that we need to withdraw from NATO military command, that this is the time to do it. Again, I'd say this is... Which, what kinds of... Who, which candidates have called for that to happen? So the candidate for the Communist Party, Fabien Roussel, and uh, Sandrine Rousseau, who's uh, one of the two contenders of the Green primary. 
So not uh, necessarily front runners for the next presidential uh, election. No, absolutely. But still, there is a, I mean, this is actually such a big crisis that there is foreign policy on the agenda in public debate in France right now. That tells you kind of <laughs> how we are um, in terms of the discussion. What, what about on the right? Are people blaming Macron for this or are they uh, blaming the Americans for being, and the Brits for this is what I was going to get to. On the right, a lot of them are blaming Macron, saying that France is humiliated, that this is not the way to go. And there is a question now of whether the right kind of adopts the same attitude as what the left is saying. And so if the right and the left tend to agree that we need to withdraw from military command, we are not there yet. But it is quite interesting that this foreign policy issue, which tends to be normally totally out of the public debate, is being used and, you know, weaponized and instrumentalized against Macron right now. He is extremely silent, by the way. He's not said anything. He um, has delegated all the... Speaking engagements uh, to Le Drian. Le Drian, who is also very discreet usually, has been on TV shows quite a bit. Uh, there was an exclusive TV show with him Saturday evening on French national TV on the foreign policy issue. Honestly, this doesn't happen very often. And he repeated those words um, of duplicity, betrayal, uh, incoherence in the strategy. So the French are pushing the European strategic uh, autonomy agenda quite a bit, um, but we haven't heard anything from the other Europeans. We haven't heard from the Germans formally or the Dutch, two other European Union member states who really, sorry. Yeah. No, no, I think that's right. Maybe, Janka, you could come in, because I think one of the things, in a way, which has made the sovereignty agenda difficult to get off the ground is, was the fact that it was seen as anti-American in different places. Does this make it harder to push it forward in places like Germany or Holland, the way that the French debate is moving? Or um, has this also been a shock to the system in those places? What do you think? Well, Annalena Baerbock, one of the can uh, chancellor candidates on uh, on the German side at the moment in the in the election campaign, has been on the record calling for a more active foreign policy, that this is about democracy versus authoritarianism, that the value compass uh, in the current government has been missing, and that there's no more business as usual now, and it calls for greater European sovereignty. So we have at least one candidate who's relatively straightforward uh, with what, what uh, she thinks uh, this is supposed to lead to. Um, we have more caution on the other side. Is she talking about sovereignty vis-a-vis -vis China or the United States? I think we're talking about the capacity to act for the Europeans. Um, and I think that is an important question that cannot be kind of uh, detangled from both of those relationships. But I think Germany is very clear where it stands when it comes to um, kind of a close transatlantic relationship that remains at the heart of all parties that are involved. And in that sense, German politics is pretty boring because the middle really holds on that um, on that front. And there is a huge consensus that there is this kind of strong and close transatlantic relationship that is important. But European capacity to act is still something that is kind of at the core of, of what Europeans would like to do and have options and to not be caught on the back foot on these issues. And I think that's what, what we've seen here again. And that's why I do think it is so troubling that there was no proper reaction with regard to the French from the German side at this at this stage. Especially because Merkel was actually in Paris last week when the announcement was made. And I don't think she, she would have lost, you know, anything um, in in coming out against uh, or against or at least giving a comment on on the announcement. She didn't say anything. She was here. I think it would have made for a good show of a bit of uh, Franco-German solidarity. And and I, I don't really understand why, why nothing was said on her side. From the other candidates, other German candidates for chancellor, I can understand. But I think it would have been a good, yeah, 
have been a good sign from her to say so. So that seems to reinforce your assumption, Jeremy, that people just think this is job well done, the fact that nobody's coming out to defend the French. That's certainly the interpretation in Washington. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's... Uh, I think, you know, European strategic autonomy is something which sort of Americans favor in theory, but not in practice. Um, and uh, I think when they, uh, I think both the the thing that calms them and worries them about the way that the that this has played out, this particular episode has played out relative to that is that, is that the French are calling for it and all of the others are really um, not paying much, don't seem to be that interested. And it sort of, it, it sort of recalls that, you know, that thing that Pascal Lamy used to say about, you know, when the French say Europe, they mean France. Um, and it, it sounds, I think it sounds to both Americans and other Europeans a little bit like French strategic autonomy. And French strategic autonomy is not really a viable uh, a viable proposition in the current world. They, France knows and needs, it, and it, it needs to have uh, its European partners with it if it's going to have an, any sort of effective strategic autonomy, whatever that means. And I think France, uh, and this is something, you know, that, that Tara told me in an earlier conversation, that, that, that France really does risk sort of isol dual isolating itself in a, in a, in a, a, a conflict like this, where it's both cutting itself off from its transatlantic partners, but also cutting itself off from its European partners by not understanding the sensitivity of the transatlantic relationship in those other countries and the ways in which you can and cannot push a European strategic autonomy. But in a way that kind of shows there's a deeper tragedy because the US, what it really needs is a strategically autonomous Europe that can be a decent ally, that can Absolutely. be a bit less pathetic and a bit more useful on its topic so that they can actually work together on Asia. And, and the US, by talking to Europeans as if we're still in the 90s and if they're still there on all the issues which they're not there and discouraging strategic autonomy is, is kind of undermining its interests. And France at the same time is undermining um, uh, its attempts to create strategic autonomy by looking like it's anti-American. So it's a, it's a bit of a tragedy in, I think, in that sense. I think that's right all around. I, I, I will say that in Washington, when you make that argument, people sort of agree with you, but they also say, well, you know what, though, even if we didn't do these things, they still wouldn't manage to get together. So they don't really think that they're losing much. But I think you're right. I think that the uh, that there is a real lost opportunity here for the Americans to be trying to fashion, uh, to help fashion a Europe, a Europe which can actually be helpful in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and I think that the, at this point, the French and the U.S. are sort of conspiring and ensuring that no such Europe emerges. OK, well, we're out of time on this podcast, but I'm sure this is not the last time we will talk about AUKUS, probably not the last time we'll talk about strategic autonomy and European sovereignty, and definitely not the last time we'll talk about transatlantic relations, China or Cold Wars. Um, but it's been a great discussion. That's all comforting. And we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf, bookshelf segment. <laughs> Yanka, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I would like to recommend a podcast uh, at this stage. It's called New Voices. Um, it is a kind of collective of um, particularly female voices promoting other female voices in China. It's about tech, about feminism, about prep freedom. And it's a fantastic podcast series that I can greatly recommend if one wants to get some bits of the other conversation that is taking place in this often heavily male-dominated foreign policy conversation. Okay, what about you, Tara? 
Well, I want to listen to Yanka's podcast now. Um, I'm reading Trevor Noah's autobiography called Born a Crime, which um, are tales of his childhood under apartheid South Africa. Great. What about you, Jeremy? Uh, I'm reading um, a biography of Stalin that was written by um, Leon Trotsky, actually. Um, and uh, he it, it was intriguing because he, the, it's an unfinished biography because he was murdered by the subject of his biography before he finished the book. Um, but it really explores from the um, perspective of the sort of chief ideologist of the revolution how... Um, how uh, the Stalin was able to take over the revolution and, and how he was able to push out Trotsky and the other revolutionaries through a process which was, I think, uh, more bureaucratic than powerful it was, uh, in terms of ideology. It's quite interesting. Great. And I am um, still in the, more in the process of promoting things rather than reading other people's things. So I uh, would recommend our new report on what do Europeans think about the, the US-China Cold War. And also want to remind you, after last week's uh, podcast where Yanka and I talked about the age of unpeace, that we are still running this competition where if you send a question for our special Ask the Author question on, on um, uh, the age of unpeace to mark.leonard at ecfr.eu, you can have the chance to win a rare signed copy of the age of unpeace, how connectivity causes conflict. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours, but above all, by going to whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on and giving us a five-star rating and a nice review. But um, for now, from Yanka Artu, Tara Varma, Jeremy Shapiro, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Chris Eichberger. Mm-hmm.